Hello, my name is Adam Cohen. Uh, I'm a doctoral student in American Culture Studies at Bowling Green State University. Today I will be speaking with poet and associate professor of English, Dr. Michael Dowdy. Michael Dowdy teaches at the University of South Carolina, specializing in Latinx literature and poetry and poetics. He is the author of Broken Souths, Latina, Latino Poetic Responses to Neoliberalism and Globalization, put out by the University of Arizona Press. And his most recent book, titled Urbilly, won the 2017 Main Street Rag Poetry Book Award. Today we are discussing the anthology, American Poets in the 21st Century, Poetics of Social Engagement, published by Wesleyan University Press in 2018, which Dowdy co-edited with the internationally recognized poet Claudia Rankine. Hello, Michael. Hello, Adam. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you here. Uh, so let's just jump right in. Um, throughout my first reading of the collection, I found that many of the poems I enjoyed had themes of motherhood, and I found trope of mother figures and grandmothers and matriarchal lineages. Um, uh, this is not a thread that runs through the entire collection, though, correct? Uh, that's right. Um, so to, just to touch on very briefly the... Um the trope of mothers and motherhood or the figures of mothers and motherhood in the collection. So the, the first poet in the collection um, is, a, is a Latina poet named Rosa Alcala, um, who addresses this theme in her poetic statement. And also for me, one of the, the most exciting poems in the anthology, which is a prose poem called Voice Activation. And she's addressing in this poem her, her mother, who was in the hospital, who was a Spanish speaker, um, so it's a poem about translation, and she frequently, in her performances, uh, performs the poem through voice activation software. So it suggests the ways in which motherhood, something that is so intimate and familiar, is often mediated and translated um, and sent through a series of miscommunications, potentially. Um, but the motherhood theme is, is prominent in Carmen and Smith and various poets, but it's also prominent in um, the poet Fred Moten, um, who writes about a black maternal ecology. Um, and one of his best books is a book called B. Jenkins, which is named after his mother. But you're right that, that the theme isn't taken on um, evenly by all poets. Um, and this is sort of the way that I, I, uh, we envisioned the subtitle for the anthology working, and that is Poetics of Social Engagement, um, which comes from an essay by the poet Kathy Park Hong, who is also included in the collection. So social engagement is, is a much broader um, sort of frame than poetics of resistance or um, protest poetry. And social engagement allows for a variety of modes and forms, commitments and engagements. Therefore, a, a variety of themes and topics um, that are, uh, I, I think, stretch in, 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 in all sorts of directions. That's right. Um, all right. So in the sense that this collection doesn't... Um, have a particular set of themes. Uh, social engagement is very broad. There's a variety of different styles of poetry. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the the story and the process of putting this book together. Um, okay. Uh, I think the, the most important thing to, to know about this anthology is that it is fourth in a series of um, uh, American poets um, by Wesleyan University Press. So, each of the four volumes, including our fourth volume, is co-edited by Claudia Rankine, um, who, as you noted, is um, now best known for her book, Citizen. 
So the anthology has a unique format, um, uh, which is it has three parts to each chapter, a selection of the poet's poems, about 10 to 12 pages, a poetic statement, um, usually two to three pages by the poet, in which the poet explains or theorizes or contextualizes her poetry. Sometimes theoretically, sometimes more biographically. And then the final section is a critical essay by a critic or scholar who is often a poet, introducing readers to um, the poet's work. As for the process of selection, um, this is a, as I learned, and this is the first editorial project that I've, I've done, um, it's not as straightforward um, as, as one might expect. Um, it, we, we wanted to make sure that we had a, um, a broad range of poets in terms of uh, aesthetics. Um, some, of, some of the poets here are, are quite experimental. So a poet such as Edwin Torres, the New Yorkian poet, and some uh, are, are much more invested in the lyric tradition, um, such as Carmen Amena Smith, uh, even Kathy Park Hong, who writes a, sort of a maximalist lyric. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to, 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 to create a volume that, in which the poets are, are not affiliated by school or aesthetic or movement, but that it sort of captured this emergent literary formation um, in, in 2016, 2018, in this period, um, that allowed for all sorts of, um, kind of poetic possibilities that um, engage with politics, economics, social identity, um, uh, environmental devastation, um, indigenous rights, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you have 14 poets, uh, but there's 28 contributors in total because of all of the, the, the paratexts. That's right. Um, so in, in one way, uh, I, I like to think of this as um, a volume that um, brings poets and critics together and brings uh, um, poems and critical essays or scholarly essays together. There are very few uh, volumes or anthologies or moments, in, in particularly in, in the poetry world, where critics and poets get together in this fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in a way, I, I find it this format, which is is preceded my work with the with the with the volume, is quite elegant. And not only elegant, it's I think useful for students who are introduced to a, a challenging poets. For example, Brian Blanchfield, um, who is a terrific poet um, and, and frankly not that well known. Um, and the essay is by um, a poet and critic named Chris Nealon, um, who describes Blanchfield's poetry in a way that I think is inviting and accessible to um, to first-time readers. Um, he describes Blanchfield's poetry as a deliberately difficult Whitmanianism, mm-hmm. but but one that it, it doesn't attempt to alienate readers, but attempts to bring them bring them closer. So this is uh, an anthology that uh, is very useful in the classroom, uh, undergrad or graduate classes. I, I hope. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think we're at a, at a moment in, um, in 2018 when we're still debating the, the value of, uh, of texts, of books that you can pick up in your hands, so the, the relationship between material culture and um, the Internet era. 
Um, but, the, but by design, this anthology, I think, would be um, excellent for upper-level undergraduate classrooms, graduate classrooms both for PhD programs in literary studies, but also for um, creative writing programs, MFA programs and PhD programs, because it does attempt to bridge um, the divide between creative writers and critical writers, uh, which is still a prominent divide in the academy, particularly in the poetry world. Excellent. I agree. Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, the curation and selection process. Sure. Um, so was there any contention from poets about the selected poems? Maybe surprisingly, no, not really. <laughs> um, so the way that, that Claudia and I um, handled this process is we, when we solicited a poet, um, we asked the poet, okay, we'd love to invite you to participate in this volume. And, and many, if not most poets, were already familiar with the Wesleyan series because it has a type of visibility in the, in the poetry world. Um, the first thing we asked him is, who do you think... Um, would like to and would be well qualified to write about your work, to write the essay. So who are the critics or fellow poets or translators who would, who would write about your essay? And then we charge them with making the poetry selection uh, collaboratively. So for a pairing such as Daniel Brzezinski, um, the, the Latino poet of Chilean descent, and his essayist, um, Kristen Dykstra, who was a first-rate translator, they set about deciding which of Daniel's poems um, from his collections would uh, give us a good snapshot of his career thus far. Um, and ideally, then, the essay would respond, at least in part, to the selection of poems, so that it would be ready-made for, for the classroom. Um, so generally, um, the poets and critics together did a an efficient and quick job of choosing which poems to select. There is the tension, of course, that you only have eight to ten pages. And many poets, of course, wanted many more pages. <laughs> Undoubtedly. Uh, but, 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 that, but that worked well, I, I think. In, in, um, most of the poems are um, previously published poems. There are a handful of new poems, but we really wanted to make sure that most of the poets gave us a... Um, a career retrospective um, or a career retrospective, retrospective in progress. Okay, yeah, I, um, I'm surprised to hear that, and, and I'm sure they appreciated the, uh, uh, their, their ability to have input and collaborative collaboration. I, I feel like sometimes there's uh, contention about how a poet gets anthologized, so giving them the ability to uh, have a say in that process I think is very important. Well, I, I appreciate it, and thank you for saying that. There's a, a very famous clip of Gwendolyn Brooks introducing her poem, uh, We Real Cool, in a public reading, in which she, um, she complain is not quite the right word, but in which she points out that anthologists keep anthologizing We Real Cool while ignoring all of her other poems. So there is a tension in the, in the anthologizing process that, that certain poems appear over and over again, while others um, don't. For, for institutional reasons, um, for reasons of publishers and so on and so forth, um, and, and for some poets, it's, it, it was it was more challenging than others. Um, so, for a, a poet such as Banu Kapil, um, who has five book-length projects, um, 
we simply had to make excerpts, mostly prose excerpts from each of these five books. So her selection looks quite different, um, for example, than Christine Hume's selection, which are these short um, lyric poems. Um, but it, yeah, I think it's one reason why poets, at least these 14 poets, um, like to participate in this project because it gives them a, a range of autonomy mm-hmm. that perhaps other um, other aspects of the publishing world do not. So all in all, this was uh, this was your first time editing an anthology. This was an enjoyable experience, from what I hear. Um... It took a long time. That is the first thing to say. There is a lot of labor involved in this process. Um, from the curation and selection to um, the permissions process. Um, and labor for the, the essayists, for the poets, um, for the editors, um, for the press. Um, but all in all, it was, a, it was really a privilege to be able to work with these poets. Um, poets who I may not have ever gotten to know otherwise, because particularly in the academy when you're when you're doing work in a field, um, sometimes you get you get trapped in that field, and so to be able to um, to um, to work with the poetry of Anu Kapil, for example, or, or, or Craig Santos Perez, Barbara, Barbara Jane Reyes, um, who who whose work I might not have dealt with in my own scholarly writing or my own critical practice um, was a real pleasure, and again. As a poet and a critic, it, it felt like a great privilege and, and a response, great responsibility to bring poets and critics together in what I hope is such a generative and productive fashion. And of course, working with Wesleyan, who is one of the great publishers of poetry in this country, and working with Claudia, who is, um, by, by my eye, um, one of the most important writers in the United States right now, um, it was a, it was a really a, an honor, and in, in some ways, it feels like more important work than publishing my own scholarly monograph. Mm-hmm. And in that way, perhaps even more rewarding because um, in this process, you come to see yourself as an advocate for poets whom you really love, who you think are important, and perhaps don't get as much attention uh, as, as as they deserve. Right. Um, all right. So I wanna I wanna take us back to what you said earlier about uh, the variety of poetics in this collection. Um, also, keeping in mind that it's not just a book of poetry. There's all of these paratexts. Uh, I I drew uh, like a theoretical lineage to Gloria Angel Dewar's Borderlands, um, sure. in the sense of just a hybridity. Uh, in identity, hybridity of language and literary forms. Um, and I thought many of these poets, like Ansel Dua, practice uh, trans-genre forms of, of, of poetry. Yeah. Uh, is there anything that you could say about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one, th- one thing that you're, you're also noticing is the, um, the fact that there are um, six Latinx poets in this volume. So I think there is that kind of that, that immediately noticeable um, affiliation or lineage um, with with that sort of border or hybrid writing. But the, but but there are, I think two main points to draw out here. Um, 
both of which are related to questions of aesthetics. Um, the first is that many of these poets are multilingual poets. They write multiple languages um, at the intersection of languages. Um, many of them, um, uh, Rosa Alcala and Daniel Brzezinski most prominently are, are um, full-time, they work um, as translators um, and have translated Latin American poets, um, very prominent Latin American poets. Um, and then there's a, a poet such as perhaps Kathy Park Hong, who invents her own languages, which she calls bad Englishes, sort of global polyglot lyric, um, where she's in, inventing pigeons and creoles. Um, so I think generally the poets in this volume are, are interested in kind of multilingualism, uh, or, or at least a non-monolingual sort of poetic practice. Mm-hmm. So, And the second part is that many of these poets are, are working between genres or intergenre or transgenre work, depending on what your preferred term is. So sometimes that looks like uh, simply poems that look like prose. At other times, it, it looks like poets adapting on other sorts of um, textual practices, ethnography, travel writing, theoretical writing, and, and, and Fred Moten, for example, um, or the prose poems of um, Mauricio Kilwain Guevara. So, yeah, I think that those multilingualism, intergenre writing are, are two prominent uh, through lines um, in this collection. And even someone who writes a straightforward, even though very complicated lyric, like Brian Blanchfield, his most recent book is a book of, of personal essays. Uh, called proxies that is really terrific so many of these poets are working in multiple genres as well as working between genres mm-hmm. uh, and I think you highlight this well in the in your introduction in the mm-hmm. anthology uh, with this term creative non-poetry is this Joseph Joseph Harrington this is Harrington right uh, so creative non-poetry is an inter- indeterminate space where the histories of genre clash morph or dissolve. Absolutely. So part of what, what Harrington's uh, ambit here is he's, he's talking about documentary poetry, documentary modes. And many of the poets in this volume draw from or reinvent documentary modes, um, ranging from, from a poet such as Roberta Tejada to Craig Santos Perez very prominently, um, Kathy Park Hong, Bonnie Capil, and others. So, I mean, in one sense, what, what Harrington is getting at is that simply he's trying to describe what poetry looks like now. It doesn't look simply like lines on a page. Mm-hmm. Uh, books of documentary poetry may have photographs and maps and diagrams, as in um, Craig Santos Perez's From Unincorporated Territory series. It may have quotations. It may have interviews and dialogues and long prose passages. Um, so I think part of rethinking um, poetry that, that Harrington is doing here is he wants to move away from any, any understanding of poetry as a monolith. And, and also challenging um, subjective individual experiences as the surface of of 
the poet's intention, right? Absolutely. And I mean, I think maybe this is a, a good time to talk about Craig Santos Perez very briefly, is his book series um, from an unincorporated territory, um, which is now has four books. Um, and he's writing from the, um, the unincorporated territory, the colony of the United States, Guam, as a native Chamorro. And his poetics is, is both deeply autobiographical, personal, and he uses the haibun that adapts the Japanese form. But it is also um, fact-based. He uses interviews. He uses uh, information from tourist websites. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has given um, testimony in front of the UN um, about, um, about Guam, and he, and he excerpts from that. So there's a way that, that many of these poets are toggling between yeah, that subjective individual experience that from the romantic tradition we think of as the the subject matter and the point of view of poetry, so toggling between that and something that is much more um, documentary, fact-based, reportorial, um, that has uh, a, a different sort of surface as well as a different sort of um, orientation towards creativity and the imagination. So given that so many of their poetics are, it sounds like what you're saying is there's a lot of like experimentation going on with form. Um, uh, do, do any of these poets consider themselves avant-garde? Is that a term that has gone out of fashion? Um, uh, I think, I think generally, yes. Kathy Park Hong has a, um, a, um, a great essay from a handful of years ago called uh, Delusions of Whiteness in, in, in the Avant-Garde. And so she, she has this very trenchant, rigorous critique of the whiteness of the Avant-Garde um, for all of the, the ways in which they've been exclusionary, particularly for, for poets of color. Um, J. Michael Martinez, who is a poet but also a critic in this, in this volume, um, has another great essay about the exclusion from the avant-garde of, of, of Chicano or Mexican-American poets. Um, and, and in her essay, Kathy Park Hong basically says, and I'm quoting, fuck the avant-garde. Right? We're going to hew our own path. Um, so perhaps in, in ways, certainly um, Fred Moten's work is in a vanguard, but, but these poets generally don't identify as avant-garde or vanguard. And, and to think of a poet like Roberto Tejada, um, uh, the Latino poet um, who spent many years living and working um, in Mexico City, part of what, what he might say is that, yeah, for my tradition, we don't even call it the avant-garde. In Latin America, you would call it the, the, the vanguard, right? which has a, a different sort of connotation. Part of the problem with the avant-garde as a connotation is it's a, it's a martial term. It's the soldiers on the front line. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I mean, it's, a void, it's a term that I try to avoid in the introduction, and I think it's a term that, that most of these poets are, are going to keep at arm's length um, because it's so identified with a, a sort of white male um, poet in, in, the, in the United States um, that they're, that they're um, wary of at, uh, at best. Okay, um, thank you. Let's move on to the topic of really what we mean by social engagement here. Um, and what was it like writing the introduction to a book that, uh, so the subtitle is The Poetics of Social Engagement. 
So trying to kind of like put a net around all of this sounds like it was probably pretty difficult. And what was, what was the tension there? Well, the first thing I'd like to pull out of your question is, is the generative figure of the net. Um, I, I like the way you, say, you use that term because a net is, it creates a frame or it bounds what is within, but it's also porous. Um, it, 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 it works in, in, in multi -direct, multiple directions at once. Um, so I, I think this is a, a frame, Poetics of Social Engagement, that is by design um, broad. It, it allows for a wide range of aesthetics, of political commitments, of subject and social positions. Um, and really, it also has a strong, I think, political valence because it's drawn from Kathy Park Hong's essay, Poetics of Social Engagement, in which she uh, engages in a, um, a critique of Kenneth Goldsmith and other conceptual poets. And she, um, so she has this, this, this position that the social engagement, political social engagement, will replace kind of the depoliticized, even um, politically uh, um, right-wing poetics of, of the conceptual poets. Um, but part of what I've tried to do in the introduction is to give that term and concept a little bit of historical depth. Right. So many of the, the, the poetry movements in the United States in the movement era in the 1960s, the Chicano movement, the Black Arts movement, um, the Puerto Rican movement with New Yorkian poetry, were thinking of social engagement as, as a prominent um, orientation of their poetries. That poetry and politics, public and private, were, were intimately entangled. Um, so I think that that is how the, the, the title functions in multiple ways. It, again, it is um, it is related to what might be called a commitment literature from a, a European tradition or the French tradition of engagement. Um, but this, I, we, I think we wanted to see as being particularly um, North American or United States and with 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 roots in um, the 60s in particular. Mm -hmm. I thought uh, I, I noticed, I noticed a, what I thought to be an effort to, uh, as you said, sort of like draw out the history of what we mean by social engagement here so that this collection doesn't seem like it's, um, you know, sort of like inherently tied to the current political climate. Uh, you mentioned in the introduction that uh, this era is decades, even centuries, if not millennia in the making. Uh, their writings provide unique lenses onto the histories and outcomes of conquest and colonization, slavery and mass incarceration, neoliberalism and globalization, patriarchy, environmental devastation, and anti-immigrant nativism. Uh, so those are issues with long historical uh, foundations. Uh, so this is not just a book about contemporary social engagement in, in the sense of... Uh, you know, 2018 or the Trump presidency or anything like that. Yeah, I think to, to circle back to your previous question um, and combine these two questions, it was it was very challenging to write this introduction, in part because I kept feeling the pressure of the present. Again, with the urgent political situation, um, kind of the palpable sense of dread and fear 
that the president it was it was difficult to avoid a presentist perspective. So I remember one of the first drafts of this introduction um, I, I sent to the poet um, Daniel Brzezinski to take a look at it, and he said, "Michael, you know what? This is great, but it's it it reads." Um, as it's too trapped up in, in the present moment, and particularly with an anthology, which has a um, an archival function, you want that archive uh, and the description of, of that archive, you want it to outlast its present moment. So we said, what is someone who's going to pick this up 10 years from now? Hopefully someone will be picking it up 10 years from now. How are they going to make sense of the work these poets are doing? So that meant that they had to have some connection to the present era, but they also needed to historicize them in a way to think about um, where, where they've come from and not only where the poets have come from, the traditions they're working in, the aesthetic practices um, historically they're working in, but to think about, well, um, how do, do the, um, the politics of our present moment have an historical arc and a trajectory? And, and that was a that was a challenge because it is this is a, a, an anthology of contemporary poets, um, and, and, and it, perhaps this is one way that I was able to to to, to write the introduction in a way that um, that towed this line between present or immediate concerns and historical context. Is that all of these poets are um, what are often called, and I don't like this term particularly, but it's useful here: mid-career poets. So they all have at least three books. So um, there's some uh, each each of these poets has a um, has a history as a publication record that um, can fit uh, into this, the, the, the narrative arc that I'm trying to introduce in the, in the introduction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. Yeah, so social engagement is not something that we are meant to consider in uh, an ahistorical vacuum. Uh, absolutely not. I mean, I do think that it's, there is a type of risk in having a, a broad framework such as this one, Poetics of Social Engagement. But I, I, I do hope that it provides a, a bit of room to, not only to read the poets in this volume, but to read many poets who are not in this volume. I, I do think, and I hope, that when an anthology like this one um, functions well, it, it, it gives us the tools to read other poets, contemporaries of these poets who are working and publishing now. Because obviously you you can't have a volume of more than 14 or 15 poets. So on page, I think it's on page... Three, I mentioned a number of other poets who I would love to have in this volume. Terence Hayes, Monica de la Torre, Anne Boyer, Rodrigo Toscano, Edie Shockley, just to name a few, who could also be read through this lens. And I think that's what I'm hoping is that poetic social engagement is, is broad enough and generative enough that it, it, it helps us map, uh, read, and inhabit uh, the, the, the poetry landscape at, at, at this moment and, and hopefully projecting into the future. Mm-hmm. I guess, how does this anthology frame the relationship between poetics and activism? So I think the first thing to note is to take a step back and um, 
that part of what this anthology is interested in is when poets take on a number of other roles that are beyond just the poet qua poet. So what happens when poets act and function and write as historians or ethnographers? And what happens when poets serve as activists, for example? And we, we might ask this question, which is what happens when poets act as diplomats, um, as Harris Fine saw in his most, most recent book, uh, The Poetry of the Americas. So just take one example from the book, and that's the, um, the American Indian poet Alison Adele Hedge-Coke, um, who identifies as an activist, particularly on, on behalf of indigenous um, and environmental causes. And Chad Allen's essay on Alison Adele Hedgecoke's book, Blood Run, um, in this volume, I think is a tour de force in its explanation of the intersections of activism and poetics. So the book Blood Run is about um, an indigenous earthworks site um, in, uh, on both sides of the Big Sioux River on what is now the Iowa-South Dakota border. So Hedgecoke sets about writing a book-length um, work about this indigenous earthworks site. Um, and I'm going to read you just very briefly um, what um, Chad Allen says. Um, Hedgecoke notes um, that the long narrative poem in Blood Run that begins the sequence of, um, of poems in the book is, quote, a version of the author's oral testimony that urged the state of South Dakota Game, Fish, and Parks Department to vote unanimously to secure the site after 23 years of deliberation. Following publication... As Hedgecoke's poetic testimony became activated within diverse communities, as it was read and performed by descendants of builder nations, by native peoples across the continent, by settler descendants and new arrivals, by indigenous and non-individuous individual indigenous individuals and communities around the globe, parts of the Blood Run site were purchased and protected, reclassified as state park, reimagined as welcome immersive environment for visitors, native and non-native alike, so on and so forth. So, what he addresses the way that that that. Hedgecoke's poems were actively doing a type of political work, a type of political work in the real world. Not just that simply that um, her works are political in quotation marks, that they're engaged in political issues, but that actually the language of these texts was used as a type of political activism in a particular site, and we can call this following the critic Lytle Shaw as site-specific poetry. It makes an intervention at and from a specific indigenous site um, in um, uh, Iowa and South Dakota. So that's the most prominent example. Um, in other cases, the relationship between activism and, uh, and poetry is, is, is much uh, more tenuous. Um, and I would say that, that plenty of the, the writers in this don't identify as activists. Um, they may identify as um, what is problematically called literary citizens who, who advocate on behalf of other poets, of more precarious poets, of more vulnerable um, members of their communities. Um, but I wanted to keep that question open for readers such as yourself to ask, well, what is the relationship between poetry and politics broadly and, and, and more specifically um, what what are the relationships between poetry and activism? Because part of what I wanted to do is is have readers reimagine the ways they think of poetry. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I think this is a really exciting anthology, and I uh, keep up the good work. Uh, 
Uh, thank you, Adam. It was uh, it was my my pleasure, and it was an honor to speak with you today.